Welcome to the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast, where we share all things people stuff in leadership. Learn from leaders who have done the hard yards and learn from experience. Hear from expert authors about the latest insights from culture to strategy and messy people dynamics. Get tips and insights from multiple award-winning author and leadership expert herself, Zoe Routh. Now, on with the show. Hey, it's Zoe. I got a question for you. What if everything we thought about management was wrong? What if performance reviews were passe? What if standing meetings, regular meetings, recurring meetings were useless? What if we stopped giving people ratings for their work and got them to rate themselves? What if instead of telling people when their pay review was going to be, we got them to ask them to present the case for themselves? What if we put all of work performance back on the employees instead of leaving it up to managers? What do you think about that? Well, Matt Casey is my guest today, and he's going to tell us all about it. He's got a new book out called The Management Delusion. What if we're doing it all wrong? He has an IT background. He left school at 14. He co-founded his business, Do Things, which provides people management software to make managing easier. In this interview, we talk about the origin story where he basically experimented with a brand new way of managing his origin story at the company Moonfruit, <laughs> which was taken over by Yale.com and told to streamline and be self-sufficient. So he had to cut things dramatically to make the whole things work. So he tells us what happened and how his new revolutionary management philosophy means making life a lot easier for lazy managers. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Yay, Matt! Welcome to the show all the way from South Africa on a journey from the UK. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Zoe. <laughs> now, ever since I got the bio from your publicist and all your controversial, I think they're controversial, you may think, well, it's obvious what we do here, and your current management tips and how management is upside down, doing it all wrong, I'm like, I must talk to this gentleman, find out what he has to say, what his experience is proving us all wrong in traditional approaches to management. So your new book is called The Management Delusion. What if we're doing it all wrong? So I'm pretty excited about that title, if, if nothing else. But I think what would be great for it to help everybody listening get a sense of is your origin story. So Moonfruit, which first of all, love that name, <laughs> it was where you sort of <laughs> kicked off some of these principles. So tell us about your journey from Moonfruit to your current business, do things. Sure. Yeah, Moonfruit was, I was actually working there as a director when it was been acquired by Yale.com, who are sort of formerly Yellow Pages. And quite a lot of investment had gone into the company. They'd kind of pushed for it to grow rapidly. And the business had got quite big. I mean, not huge, but it's sort of 130, 140 employees. What is it though? What, what does Moonfruit actually do? It's a DIY website builder. So it was actually, I think, oh, okay. possibly the original one. So I didn't, obviously, I didn't, I didn't found it. it. It was probably about 20 years old. So it was kind of, you know, like Wix and Squarespace and those things. I think it was kind of around before those. Due to like a number of strategy shifts, the plan for it was to kind of become Yale.com's like replacement for the Yellow Pages online, really. It was their move for that. That didn't really work out for them. And Moonfruit kind of had to have this strategy shift when the founders left instead of being this part of a huge business to be a kind of self-sufficient thing on its own right, which kind of meant that all the stuff they'd been doing since they'd been acquired was no longer quite as appropriate because it had grown to a size and it was doing things in a slightly different way that it was going to have to do if it was going to look after itself. On top of that, it had some pretty inspirational founders who were leaving. So when I took over, it was kind of with this remit of replace these people who are frankly better leaders than you. Like there was no question that. <laughs> yeah, you got a vote of confidence. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, I mean, it was more like my view of it. It's like I was inspired by these people and they were leaving. The remit had changed to, okay, it's not we're going to grow this thing to blow it up and make it huge now. It's so like we have to make this thing as like streamlined and strategic and like efficient as it can possibly be. And yeah, I was sort of sat there and looked at it and I said, okay, so really what I have to do is kind of replace these people who I looked up to, reorganize everything to be completely different, <laughs> basically, and do it as fast as possible and spend as little money as possible. 
that immediate view actually the, the immediate thing that faced me was this idea that's like, okay, well, me trying to replace these founders is insane. I'm just going to be a bad version of them. Like, the only thing I can do is approach this completely differently. So that was like the first bit where I realized, okay, well, if I'm going to have to do it completely differently, I, I kind of have a bit of a free swing at this anyway. So I, I can probably try stuff that I've thought about for a while that maybe I wouldn't have risked doing before. Let me just check on something. Let me just, because I think this is fascinating, right? Like, so in the tech startup world, there's a lot been written about how do you start a fast growing high tech company, the kind of leadership and energy that's required to do that. And then there's this pivot where you get the founders out because they're no good at maintenance and policy and procedures. They're all good at inventing. And then you cement the strategies, which is where you came in. It's a different shift in culture and energy at that point that's required. So was it the same people that were there from the beginning? you then took over management of so yeah there were a bunch of the same people i mean there was there was obviously a, a huge like restructure off the back of them a change of style i mean there were a bunch of people that loved it before that started hating it and there were a bunch of people that hated it before that started liking it because i, I was just a completely different leader really like the whole they're like these sort of very positive very charming like very energizing people and i'm much more just functional basically um <laughs> But yeah, uh, I looked at it all. And previously, I'd been like management trainer guy. I really believed in all of the management philosophies that now I, I kind of doubt. And I, I had this sort of like crushing realization of this stuff that I'd been teaching people for ages, which was that most of us can't do it. You put in these managers across this business to deliver all of these things. So our performance reviews, you know, the pay reviews, the one-on-one -on -one meetings so that people feel supported, all of this stuff. And when I'm looking at things I can trim out of the business that actually add value, I thought all of these things add value theoretically if we do them right. Are we doing them right? So these are all sacred cows, right? Yeah, these are yeah. all sacred cows when it comes to people management. Yeah. Um, you're about to kill off a few cows. Which one did you tackle first or did you do them all at once? I did pretty much everything. I just been the whole thing. <laughs> um, I really, so everyone in the business immediately was just like, hey, you, pretty, you report to me. Like, in the sense that if there's a line manager, it's me, but I'm not really going to be doing it. <laughs> That's uh, very comforting. <laughs> um, you didn't have a, you, you didn't need a direct line manager to do most of the stuff you did. You were, you were expected to make your own decisions pretty much. Uh, so yeah, it, it was, it was all of the sacred cows, I guess, if you like, it was, it, it was all done in one fell swoop. Um, but the idea, yeah, the idea of it really was that I felt that it was better for people to have, if you were going to have a bad manager or no manager, I think it would be better to have no manager. If you're going to have a manager that's supposed to be providing all these things for you, but isn't able to provide those things for you, then really they just become a blocker for you not having those things. And if you're just told, you know what, sort it out yourself, but here's the space to do it, then you're more likely to actually get them. So when I started trying it, I wasn't, wasn't convinced it would, it would work. But I think pretty much immediately, actually, people... You, people just fall into that space if you if you give it to them. So you had 130 odd people, you said. Yeah, and that went down to 50. So we, oh. yeah. <laughs> so part of the thing was, you know, we get we uh, funding had been removed from the business for it to grow. So it was we had to become self sufficient and come down to okay, you can you can employ the number of people you can actually pay for. So the first part of the job was okay, you know, who are the, who are the 50 people you keep? It was brutal. But, you know, we, we kept the people that would do it. It was hands-on, effectively. It was like, okay, if you're just managing people, then it became you sort of expendable. Uh, and and the view, I've always viewed that as my role. I just think whenever, in any job I've ever had, I always felt like, as the manager, I'm the least useful person in this business, always. Like, I, I manage tech people and designers and you know, UX people and product people. So people that work out what we're going to build, people that build it, people that make it look great. And I think, well, you're so much more important than me. <laughs> like, if we were going to lose anyone, like, we would lose me, surely. Okay. So let's tackle some of these sacred cows, right? Because yeah. that's the premise of your book and your promise to leaders is that you can stop doing the stuff that we think is good but doesn't. Let's start with the meeting, the recurring meeting. So oh, yeah. you think <laughs> So tell me your rationale and your experience with binning the recurring meeting. So yeah, I hate the recurring meeting. I always hated the recurring meetings. Uh, I always found them unbearable. 
in binning them, I think my argument for binning them could be made pretty quickly is how many do we sit in where we think, yeah, that was good. That was a really good use of my time. It just almost never happens. We sit there. Most uh, There's a lot of grandstanding that goes on on them. Most of the conversations we have, we don't really need to have. So that the actual experience of the meeting is bad um, immediately. I think most people can recognize that there's very few people I've spoken to are like, oh, yeah, like, these recurring meetings are always great. They're always functional. I think sometimes you might pull some value out of them, but very rarely. So that's the first bit. But the, the second part of them is that I actually think that there's a harm they cause that maybe we don't notice, which is that we created these things before there was the internet, before there was Slack, before there was Teams, before there was email, before we could talk to each other immediately and easily. So at that point, the recurring meeting would have made sense. You know, if there's there's 15 of you or 10 of you or however many is going to be in the meeting and you all do need to share information. When we came up with recurring meetings, when management first started being a thing, there's no way that those 10 people can talk to each other, can share information without that meeting. Um, but now there is. So what happens now with the meeting is we could have been sharing, we could have been firing these things into Slack channels or Teams channels or whatever. We could have been having these conversations anyway, but instead we wait and we park them for these meetings and nothing has happened in this gap. And then we have the meetings and then we fill up however much time we put in that, that meeting. So if the meeting's for an hour, we fill up the hour, whether it needs an hour or not. And then we all spend that hour doing stuff. And then we come out with like what, one or two actions that were for a week. Uh, we could have been doing this. We could have done all of this like in, in seconds. You could have been doing it anyway because we have a tool. We have a meeting room that we're all sitting in all the time now. That's what Teams is. So Teams and Slack are just meeting rooms that we're all in all the time. And I don't think we need to keep now dragging ourselves into these, not the recurring meetings. Obviously, like meeting in person is still useful sometimes for specific subjects. I think if you're, you're talking about something very specific and very tight. But these are, oh, we should just get together like, once a week, no matter what. I think we just fill in the time with that. And all they do is they act as a blocker in the meantime. I agree. If it's recurring meetings for information sharing, I think those are yeah. ridiculous meetings and should not happen for the exact same reasons that you just said. What do you think about recurring meetings that are purposeful? And what I mean by purposeful, it's like about eliminating friction in the systems or problem solving or celebration or some sort of theme. Oh, uh, yes. So I would say, well, I think probably a key thing that I was trying to stress as well is that I never advocate taking away anything. Even the things I say, these things are mostly stupid in my book. If when someone looked at it, they said, I get value out of this, and they think about it and go, here's the actual value I get out of it that I know, then ignore me. Keep doing it. Definitely keep doing it if it adds value. I can't think of many recurring meetings, though, that are functional that make sense. So do you need to meet once a week to make stuff better? Or do you say, when there's a problem with something, when, when someone thinks there's a way we could make this better or we need to make this better, do we schedule a meeting immediately to say we need to make this better? I've thought of a way to make this better, so we should talk about this specific way. Or I've noticed this thing needs to be better. Can we talk about making it better? And to me, that doesn't need to be. If you have that as say, well, we get together once a month to have that conversation. And I notice the thing on like the 5th, we have the meeting on the 25th. And now I'm waiting 20 days to talk about the improvement. But actually, we could just say immediately, right, guys, I thought this thing, we should talk about this thing. Right. So that has a way of um, scheduled problem-solving meetings can be affect productivity. So this is a conversation all around output um, and task and results. What about the people side of it? What about the social dynamics and support you get from gathering? Where, how do you see that fitting into, into your suggestions? I, I, it's not like I'm saying we just never talk to each other. I think what I found was when you get rid of these recurring meetings, you give people a bunch of space and then the, the meetings happen. Your, your meetings happen anyway. So not meetings as in we plan this meeting, we go into a meeting room, but the time you spend talking to people. One of the interesting things we had when we made this change was there was one person, our product director, she was always just swamped. So you can never really get hold of her. Because of that, people felt, that they needed to book a meeting if they wanted to have any time with her because it would be, it's impossible to get your time unless I book your time. So now I'm going to book your time. So the moment you say, well, we're going to get rid of these meetings, you think, oh God, I'm never going to get any of her time. But actually people were booking sort of 30 minutes of her time, an hour of her time. And then the thing they needed to say actually only took like five minutes, but then you end up filling up that hour and you fill up that half an hour, however long it is. 
the moment those recurring meetings were taken away and everyone was like, you can just talk to her whenever you need to talk to her. She had so much more time and everyone could easily come and just walk to her desk and say that because she's never in meetings. <laughs> so you still have interactions. They're just far more dynamic. I think probably everything I suggest boils down to to one realization, which is uh, now because of the information sharing tools we have and because of the access we have to one another, reactive is better than planned. That's a big so, statement. You know, the proactive, which is sort of like the king, king business. Led. But I think it can now work. So you, I don't think you need to plan how you're going to talk to each other because you can talk to anyone whenever you want to. It no longer needs to be planned. It used to be, but it isn't now. When we came up with these solutions, they were brilliant solutions, but they weren't aware of the most powerful information tool that's ever been created. So it, it's insane to me that we would still rely on a process that was designed before the internet. Yeah. It's a good question to ask and a good thing to challenge. So I think it's interesting you say reactive is better than planned. I'm going to ponder on that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when it comes to problem solving and meetings, that's correct. I don't think it's yeah. necessarily true for everything. Oh, yeah, certainly not for everything, yeah. So that was meetings, one sacred cow. What's another one that you threw out that people often challenge you on? Uh, I think probably the one that, that people find the most shocking, I guess, is pay reviews because it sounds like I'm. It's very easy to sound like I'm basically saying, "Well, I just never pay anyone any more money." I was a reluctant manager in my early career, and I never really wanted to be one. I left school at fourteen, so I just had 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 all the terrible jobs that someone that leaves school at fourteen should have before I got anywhere close to a good job. And with terrible jobs, normally comes terrible managers. So when I started being it, I was so reluctant to be those awful managers that I'd had. And I would would become overly generous with pay rises, where basically I would be determined to get them paid, people paid as much as possible. I was always, if you weren't for me, my, I felt like my job was to get you paid as much as possible. But actually, that sort of means I'm not doing another part of my job, which is I'm supposed to be protecting the company and keeping costs low. That's another part of my job as well. So I sort of say that to frame the fact that I really care about people getting paid the most money that they can get paid. And that's why I don't think managers should be doing pay reviews because that's sort of like having an agent that works for the football club that's paying your salary. It's a, they're, they're not really necessarily going to act in your interest and they certainly have a conflicting incentive. They certainly have an incentive to act against your interest. I've been in situations where the less I paid my employees, the bigger my annual bonus would be. It's not like anyone's saying it directly, but my bonus is connected to my departmental budgets. So I have a huge incentive there to pay them less. Now, luckily, me, 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 that wasn't something I would do, but it's insane to me that there aren't managers that would do that. So my approach for pay reviews was I realized, again, the problem we create with them, and, and every year, I think every manager will know that feeling of you get your budget. So it's like, here's all your staff, your budget can increase by what, four or 5% in total, maybe. So then you sit there with your spreadsheet of your people and you're like, oh God, okay. So who gets what here? Who am I giving what salary to? And you can't give someone nothing. So that's mean. So right, you have to get this small increase and you, you're worth loads. So you have to get a lot. And you're, you're really just taking money from some people and giving it to other people. And I thought this is, there's something about this feels very wrong. I always felt that. But also I realized that I've never been happy with a pay review I've been given. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they give me. They can walk in and give me 20% and I'm like, well, why wasn't it 30? <laughs> well. Um, that, 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 that's sort of, I think that's how most people are. Like it, it's in my head, they're not something that, I, I don't think being judged in that way is a particularly good way of doing it. I don't, like, I don't think it's healthy for us to have someone else saying, this is what your value is. And I determined it, but you weren't here. So the way I decided to approach pay reviews was really simple. I just said to everyone, look, here is the deal. It's something you should, should know anyway, but I'm just making it clear to you. I'm employed by this company to keep the costs of the company down as low as possible. Like That's one of my jobs. So I am incentivized to pay you as little as possible. So that's my goal now. My goal is I'm not going to ever give any of you a pay rise, no matter how amazing you are. I'm detaching it from how I value you. So I could think you were the best employee I've ever had and I'm not going to offer you a pay rise. That, they're not going to be a thing I offer. However, 
if you make a case for one, I'm always going to listen to it. And I expect you to make a case for them. Like that's part of your job. I'm taking away this barrier of like, oh, can I ask my boss for a pay rise? Will they be annoyed if I ask? Like maybe I shouldn't ask. I just said really clearly, I expect you to ask. I'm going to be, I'll almost be annoyed if you don't ask. <laughs> if you think you're worth more money and you don't come and tell me about it, you don't put your case to me, uh, that's going to annoy me because you should. And I said, then that's it. Oh, I have so many questions about that because there's so many people who wouldn't, no matter what you say as the boss, would never feel comfortable asking for a pay rise. And I'm thinking about the male-female paradigm where women often don't feel like they should put themselves forward. They keep waiting to get acknowledged, which is a stupid mindset, but that's sort of what shows up. So tell me what happened. Okay, so everyone pretty much asked and everyone was reasonable, but what I found, so I think the male female thing is interesting there. So I mean, the, the women that work for me, obviously it's tax, so we were pretty heavy, heavily male dominated. But none of the women that worked for me, the women were actually more inclined to ask, I found. But that was, we had everyone, they were all incredibly strong women. I think you probably have to be to work in tech generally if you're going to go into that industry. But no, I think the, what I believe, and I don't know, is that I believe that it takes down that barrier because I think one of the reasons some people aren't inclined to ask is because the feeling is that you're not supposed to ask. Like uh, most people, the number of times I remember that people who like phone me and ask for help, like friends who are like, I'm like their management friend. So if they want some advice at work, they'll speak to me about it. Number of times I've been asked, oh, I need to ask my boss for a pay rise. Like, should I do it? How should I go about it? What should I say? But they don't even know if they're allowed to ask. They feel like they're not. And you're actually not because we give you a pay review at the end of the year. <laughs> like that's the message. We'll do it. You don't ask, we'll do it. So you get what we tell you you can get and we tell you at the end of the year. So if you ask me now, you're being rude, aren't you? So that creates this huge barrier for those people who think, oh, I shouldn't ask. But if you're told, you're supposed to ask. The thing you're supposed to do is ask. Like, even if I don't agree, you're supposed to ask. I'm never annoyed. It's fine. You come down, you sit down, you put your case to me and I might just go, no, but I don't, I don't agree with that at all. But you're supposed to ask. The moment you do that, I, I don't think there's a barrier. I certainly didn't think... There was no one that didn't come to me that I felt should. But interestingly, no one came to me that I felt shouldn't either. I did a similar thing with the bonus. So the bonus scheme, because obviously we were pulled into a big company, so we had to we had big company like systems, which I didn't like anyway, that we we kind of had to conform to. And one of them, which in, in fairness to them, it's like this is, I mean, how else can you do a bonus scheme on a big level? The standard way, it's performance score between one and five, your bonus is linked to that performance score you're given. So at the end of the year, I'm there, okay, so I'm scoring everyone now out of five. Like <laughs> That's the thing I'm doing. And that inherently uh, I have, problems with from like the interpersonal need of like the manage, manager employee relationship but that score i thought okay i don't want to do this like, i don't want to sit here and score everyone so how can i avoid doing this in a way that's fair right and most most of the things i come up with basically how can i get the same thing without doing any work and the, the way i worked that out was actually i said to everyone here's the deal that three is the default score for your bonus now so three means you didn't do anything wrong and you weren't exceptional, you did your job exactly as you were expected to do. So everyone has a three. That's your bonus. Now, two things can happen to change that. I might come and talk to you to say it's less than a three, and this is the reason it's less than a three. Or you can message me to tell me it should be more than a three. And if you tell me it's, so you don't even need to justify it. You can send me a message on Slack and say five if you want. If I agree, then it's a five. And if I don't agree, then we're going to have a conversation about it. But that's it. That's how we'll determine the bonus. Everyone gets the three unless I tell you it's less or you tell me it's more. And everyone, the only mistakes were, or mistakes are the only thing was the things we didn't agree were two people said four and I felt they should have been five. And at that point, I corrected them. <laughs> they said, okay, I think maybe I should be a four. And I went, no, wrong. You've been brilliant. It's five. And they were the, that was it. So I went from this painful thing that I had to go through that actually as well demotivated everyone. Even if you know that your performance was three, if your manager gives you a three, it sort of sucks. <laughs> like you're like, ah, oh, they don't value me. They value me at three. Like it feels horrible. But without having to go through that scoring process and asking people to score themselves, it became their score. Like they, they gave them that three. I didn't. 
I said, it's, you can be a five if you want. Tell me you're a five. And if you did, if you were, then it's fine. Did you ever have to talk to people who were under three? Uh, there were two people that uh, I felt shouldn't have been, uh, I think, in total over the time. And I told them and they agreed immediately. And it was just, yep, yeah, that's right. I think that's correct. Okay. That one I would say, though, there's a little bit of doubt with that. I probably want to do that more before I'm certain that that isn't an issue in terms of, well, are they just saying it's correct because well, what else are they going to say? Like, are they really going to fight back? So I accept that there's a potential that that might not be perfect, but compared to the other way, if I go and score everyone and give them scores, I, was, I could have been wrong on all the scores last, <laughs> like four, but this one, the only ones I can be wrong on are the ones I go low. And yeah, we, I think the actual amount of bonus, one, one of the problems as well, I, I assume everyone has this, especially if you're in big companies, is this kind of, the unspoken quota of the number of people that can have the highest bonus. So, and this is this is the, like the the craziness of management that I sometimes see. So, my job as a manager is to make everyone perf- to perform as well as possible. Yet, I'm not allowed to give everyone a top bonus score. Most HR that would get blocked. So, I'm not allowed to do my job perfectly. <laughs> if if I made everyone brilliant, that that wouldn't be acceptable. <laughs> like, so they, okay, but that's crazy like, like to me that's crazy I'm not, I, I can't even do this job perfectly so I hated the process especially when, when I was in the situation where I actually felt okay well I think a bunch of these people if you're in that situation where you think I think a bunch of these people are worth more but you're having to give scores that are lower nothing about that feels right to me no. so do you have like did you have a set pool of bonus money that you had to divvy up according to these ratings uh, it was more just a kind of only a certain it was it was more like uh it was sort of viewed as relational i guess in this scheme it was that it, your top performers are your top performers so if in your team and your company so because we were part of a huge company our company sort of for them just felt like a team like it was just well yeah like you're sort of for your 50 people so you're a team for us because we've got thousands of people so for them it's so well our top our top 10 percent are our top 10 percent and I, I've never liked that relational scoring and the way a bonus should work to me, I think. Well, it, the assumption is that not everybody can become exceptional. Yeah. So the assumption is there's always going to be really good people and then very average people. And you're right. It disincentivizes both you and the workers to try and be better. Yeah, exactly. It also create, makes your, it sort of makes your colleagues your competition as well. If you're, if only, I mean, I know like, we don't really think about it that way, but in truth, you're better off being average on a team of terrible people than you are being brilliant on a team of superstars financially. And that's crazy. So like that should be alarming to me. That should be avoided. Right? The whole bonus structure in that way to me should be avoided. But as a, as a stepping stone to that and not as a solution to all of that, because I understand why that exists. I understand the need for it, especially in big companies. Uh, but as a stepping stone to that, I think, the taking away of us determining people's value for them and having them accept it. I think reversing that makes so much more sense just from treating people like adults. Just to say, look, you tell me what your value is to this company. There's another side effect of that, which I think from the pay review to the bonus, if you know you have to make that case yourself, if you know for your pay to increase, you have to make that case. That creates a knock-on effect where... You have to know what you have to do to add value. It sort of pushes you to understand that. The number of times in my early career where I've just not asked what I'm supposed to have done. I've just I've been an employee. I've been great. <laughs> I'm definitely awesome. So, so I just walk into my pay review just thinking, well, everyone's going to give me all this money that I deserve now because I'm the best. And then they go, no, you know what? You're not. <laughs> Here's like a 2% pay rise. And I walk out really unhappy. And I think, well, actually, like, I never did. I ever find out? Did I ever find out what it was I needed to do to get the twenty percent I was expecting? So I didn't. But if they'd said to me that, you know, at the end, like, you can come and ask for more money, but we have to agree with you. I'd be like, oh, okay. What do I have to do to get more money? <laughs> I'd have been more. I'd have realised I had to check. And these things, I think, to managers are obvious, but we forget that. So a lot of this stuff isn't obvious to employees. It's not obvious. People have a very small view of the world when they haven't done management roles before. So I think that there's interesting that having people rate themselves and prove their value to the company forces that lens to expand a little bit. 
it leads a little bit to your one of your other sacred cows, which is performance reviews. And those have been flavor of the month to throw out. What's your rationale for ditching them as well? So this one was quite fine to me as always. I was I was like the king of the promoting performance reviews for a long time. So a good performance review is responsible for me having a career at all. Like that's, I was consistently getting fired and being difficult at work. I ran into one good company, but <laughs> one good company, one good performance review, one good manager that fixed a lot of stuff that I was doing wrong. And from that point on for a long time, I was like, performance reviews are the best. Everyone should do performance reviews. They're crucial because I'd had this one good experience. But then I had this realization that that was like 10 years into my career. I'd had nine horrible experiences. It actually, performance reviews failed for nine years, finally got it right. And I'm like, they're the best. Uh, they are fantastic if you have a manager who delivers the perfect one. And, and what is the perfect one? I want to know what that recipe is. Like, If, if you go in and it's like, I mean, I, as a manager... I'm going to be generous and say I think under 10% of my performance reviews have been beneficial to my employees, no matter how hard I tried. We know that feeling of you're sitting there prepping them and you're like, oh, God, what am I going to put in this? And you've got six or seven reports, so you've been prepping all of them and you're trying to make them this you know, supportive, great developmental experience. But actually, it's sort of turned into admin now, hasn't it? And you were just like, ah, oh, okay. So then we're going to sit in this meeting and I'll set you these goals. I guess these are sort of your goals. Maybe this means that and then from the employees like how many of us have had a performance reviews where we walked out thinking yeah this has made me better i think the data on it gallup did a survey and i think it was something like only 14 percent of people agreed that a performance review inspired them to get better at work so what happened during the one that inspired you it was actually just again it, it, it the guy that did it was an exceptional manager so he was someone that he was the guy that did all of my initial management training because uh, after that performance review, I got myself to a point where I ended up in management and then this guy did loads of management training for me. He'd built a huge, huge company and then was just like doing management consulting sort of for fun, like in his early 40s or whatever, just because he liked doing it. He was, he was brilliant. He was exceptional. Probably still the best manager I've known, like functionally. But that's how good he needed to be to do it. Like, that's how good he needed to be for it to work. And I thought, okay, well, most of us aren't that good. One in seven people are managers. One in seven people aren't good enough to, to fly this plane. So can you give me an example of one of the things that he did that was put him in this elite management stratosphere? I think he had a, he had a way of being honest, which sort of honest without it being harsh. So it's like, it was almost like, you know, some people have that thing where they can just be honest with you it's like they're, they're completely, there's no filter of like, I'm trying to manipulate you or change anything. I'm just telling you the thing that's true. I think he did that very well. I think for me, maybe as well, like he had, he had the credibility behind him where I was more inclined to listen to him. There was a bit of authority to the way he behaved and the things he knew. But he also just was exceptionally good at observing the way I'd behaved and then communicating in a way that made sense to me. So one of the things I used to do I had a, oh yeah, actually I used to, I probably still do it a bit sometimes if I'm honest. He definitely improved it a lot. But um, if I thought I was right about something, I was unbearable. <laughs> Didn't matter who else is in the room. I'm right about this. I'm just going to blow over you. So you're, I have this opinion and you're just going to keep hearing it until you get to talk again. <laughs> that was sort of how I would behave. At that time, I was sure as well a lot of the things I was saying were right, but people were just ignoring me and it was infuriating to me. So this, how, how do they not see that this is right? How do they not see that I'm right about this? So he put something, and I'll remember it forever because it was just so perfect. He just said, the thing is about everything you're saying, you are right. Like, how's right working out for you? <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. He goes, you are right about all of this stuff, but how is being right working out for you? Like, it's not working, is it? Right. So you need to find something else to do because just being right apparently isn't good enough. Right? Like that's not going to help. I'm like, oh, yeah. And for some reason, and again, I knew what made him good. He, he knew that it was like he didn't need to tell me the whole thing. He needed to give me something in a framework where I could just go, okay, he didn't need to tell me why I was wrong. He needed to say, are you right? <laughs> like, is this working? I'm like, well, no, it's not working. And then I had to go, of course it's not working because who wants to just get yelled at by someone <laughs> for ages about how right they are? 
what's the solution then? So if you ditch performance reviews because not everybody can rise to the occasion like this gentleman did, and most people aren't as observant or as astute or as a good a communicator, according to your theory, yeah. <laughs> um, how do you help people to grow if you're not giving them performance reviews? Well, I guess there's two parts to that. The first was even if we did nothing, I think that would be better than the performance review because I don't think they do help people to grow, really. I think they have a negative effect more often than they have a positive effect, in my experience. So even if we did nothing, I believe that would be an improvement. But in terms of work, the way I think you could handle it, I think the right way, it seems like a little bit uh, dystopian to people a lot of the time. But I, I think it is the mechanism of having employees give feedback to one another like, properly. Like having a mechanism to help them do that, to support them do, do that. So one of the reasons managers are supposed to give feedback, one of the things I always think about with feedback generally uh, is like the, there's an example story of some feedback moving through a big business I work for. It involved recurring meetings as well. So an event happened. A guy worked for me, uh, was rude to a woman that worked for someone else. Happened just, I didn't even know the situation. So she waits for her one-on-one with her manager. It's like three or four days. Has her one-on-one with her manager, explains it to her. Her manager then waits for the weekly management meeting we have to tell me that this thing happened. So this thing happens, then I went wait for my one-on-one with the guy that did it, and then I tell him that thing happened. So by the time he got the feedback that he'd behaved a way that upset someone, it's like three weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that doesn't need to happen. The reason for that, I assume, is that we think, well, people aren't very good at f- giving feedback. Like that's, it's an acquired skill. So we're going to train some managers to do it, and then we're going to use those as filters to take information from one person and give it to someone else. My problem with that is even when we train managers, we're still terrible at giving feedback. Most of us don't do it right. I, the models are lovely as well, but I also think a lot of the time the models are a little bit they put a barrier up between you and someone else. We said, if you have a good relationship with someone, you don't need to use the model. You can just tell them stuff. So first of all, I think like we're not doing the feedback well anyway, so do we need us? And secondly, we could actually use technology to help people give the feedback properly themselves. So you could actually create a tool now that steers people to say, okay, here, here's the correct way to give feedback. Then just run up to someone and say, hey, you know what? You're shit everything you do. <laughs> like, that's not going to work. But if, if it's, okay, here are the specific things that are troubling me. Like, this is your behavior. This is the consequence of the behavior. Uh, that information is useful to people. And one of the things that there's a company, it's obviously they're not exactly anyone's favorite company, but I think there's this, I find it, find it incredibly interesting the way they work. It's Uber or Deliveroo, actually, any, any of the gig economy things. So there was something like 6 billion rides on Uber in 2019. So... Six billion drivers, six billion riders, right? All of their behaviors are managed by Uber and improved by Uber. Taxi drivers are way better behaved since Uber than they were before. So they're more likely to be on time. Their cars are more likely to be clean. Everything about that is far better. Riders, forget it. I mean, like the levels of violence and abuse to taxi drivers dropped, like damage to the cars, all of that dropped. And all of that dropped just by having this rating at the end of the, the ride. That's how that stopped. It was everyone knew, it's like this person's actually gonna have a say about me. <laughs> and, and their behavior changed overnight. Now, can you imagine getting rid of that system and Uber saying, right, instead of that, we are gonna give these six billion riders and these six billion drivers a manager, and we're gonna give them performance reviews once a year <laughs> to see how well they're doing their job. <laughs> it would be horrible. <laughs> And I know people say, I know it's very easy to dismiss that. Guy, it's just a taxi driver and it's just riding. But it's to control the behavior of drunk people in taxis all around the world. I can't think of a harder management activity than that. It's like, that's incredible, really. And we can do that with like, they can do that with a score. It's, well, it's, it's because your reputation's at stake. So the currency is reputation. Exactly, yeah. So have you implemented a version of that in the workplace? Yeah, so the software made, that was kind of the, the company that I run now, Do Things. We make a platform that basically enables all of the approach I talked about. Um, I don't want to turn it into a plug. It's just so it leads to that. Plug like away, mate. <laughs> you, do, you do need technology to do that bit. So the way, the way we have it is you can start projects and you can pull people into the projects you're working with. And when that project's closed, everyone that was in that project 
gives feedback on each other and what it worked with. And they're very specific things. So I break the performance down. So it's just we ask you to score people in three areas, which is can they do what they said they could do? Were they able to do the things they said they were able to do, their skill? Like, can they do the job? Uh, did they do the job? So it's all very well, could they do it? But did they turn up? Did they do what they said they were going to do? And do I want to work with them? No, do I want to work with this person again? And you just provide that information. Now, none of that to me is particularly harsh, like to hear. Like, I mean, I guess, you know, if you just say, yeah, this person wasn't good enough, uh, couldn't do the stuff that they said they were going to do, they weren't as skilled as they said they were. But I like working with them. And, you know, they, they tried, but they just weren't able to. I think that's useful information to know. A lot of this is, I'm trying to manage me in the past to make me a bit better. And I think one of the things that I definitely would have learned if I'd had access to that information early in my career would be, no one thinks I can't do it. Everyone knows I work hard, but people don't like working with me because I'm trying to take too much. I'm, and the thing is, I was that was self-perpetuating because the less people were engaging with me, the more I thought, can't they see how right I am? And then I would just do more of the thing I should have been doing less of. And I think that feedback straight away was everyone knows when, everyone knows you're good. Everyone knows you're capable and calm down. Your precious little ego is all right. You're not very pleasant to work with, though. And I think I'd have immediately gone, yeah, that makes sense. I wouldn't want to work with a me either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My last question for you around this is, what was the impact on the culture as a result of these implementation, these changes? I think, I mean, so it, to be clear, like, it, the culture of Moonfruit before uh, four weeks ago was amazing anyway. So it was it was an incredible culture of everyone being very, like, it was, it was like everyone that worked there would probably say it's one of their favorite places they worked. And again, we had these incredible founders. So I knew straight away, so I'm like, okay, I don't think I could recreate that same culture. I think I'm probably going to have to actually destroy that culture based on where we are and, you know, the goals for this place now uh, and the kind of person I am. So we had to destroy one that was brilliant, but then we had, we had to recreate a different one. There is an example of how strong that culture became. It was like this probably I don't have moments of pride at work. It's, I'm, I'm that awful person who's just like, no matter where I am, I'm like, oh, I've already sort of thought about where I want to be. Right? So I never feel like I've achieved anything. Right? The moment I, anything's done, I'm like, well, I've already, already want to do that other thing and I haven't done that, so I kind of suck. I probably one of three moments of pride in my whole career was this particular moment of Moonfruit. After everything's done, we're, we're working this way. We're, we're producing stuff so fast, though. We're knocking software out all the time, uh, which is great from a work point of view. But we, t we got a new hire. And obviously, everyone has this like complete freedom to you work when you want to work, pretty much. Like, you're in charge of yourself. Uh, you're not, no one's going to be standing over your shoulder making you do stuff. And we got this new hire and he was taking advantage of that. Like he was really just basically doing it. He was, he was the problem employee for that system. And I didn't really have to deal with it at all. The culture of the company dealt with it. They just jumped on him like a pack of wolves. <laughs> it was so oh, really? clear. Yeah, they were, they were proud of this thing that they'd made. It mattered to them because they were so – it was theirs. Like they, like they worked because they chose to work. This person is coming in and not obeying the rules of this pack. And it wasn't, I didn't have to say anything. It was, it was managed by these dominant personalities that had just appeared within the group. And I think one of the things, interestingly, from the leadership point of view as well, which I found there, is we had several leaders. They were different for each different thing. We had certainly had like a cultural social leader. She was the one that sort of set the clock, set the, set the beat for how, how we're supposed to behave here. It's like you, you always knew it, like you messed up. She was the one that was going to call you out on it. And then there was like the organizational leaders that would come up and say, okay, this is getting a bit messy. Some people will step in and just do that. Everyone had a different role, but it wasn't defined, which meant you could just step out of it and step into it, and someone else would step into it if they needed to. Then one of the things when you say, here's this leader, and I, I'm certainly someone that experiences this as well. I, am, I think I'm a good leader in some very set situations, and I think I'm a bad leader in some other ones. When I'm told, right, you manage this whole thing all the time, I'm like, okay, well, that's really good when everything's going wrong. Like, I think I'm pretty confident that if, if you give me a, this is a mess, it needs to be fixed team, I think I'm quite a good leader for that. I'm not a great leader for, this is really good, how do we find 5% more? Like, then I'm not that guy, I'm not disciplined enough. But I didn't need to be there when things got to that stage because we had a few of those people. 
who just sort of nudge me out of the way and they'd be like, I'm doing that. But then when we found areas where things weren't going right, I'd just find myself over there and fixing that. When you create a vacuum, but you create space for people to move into it if they want to, I think people do go into that spot. And when you haven't used an org chart to fix them there, they can get out of the way if they need to, or they, they actually get pushed out of the way by the group. The group chooses their leaders in that dynamic more. So what happened to Mr. Problem Child? He got jumped on by the pack of wolves. Did he stay? Did he go? Did he step up? He left because it was an unpleasant place for him to work. I remember hearing, uh, I think it was in Good to Great. They were talking about Nordstrom companies with really strong cultures. And I think they were saying that what they found was any company with a strong culture, one of the things you'll find is that people quit a lot because if you're not part of that culture, you hate it there. So I think people would join Nordstrom. I'm one of the people that would quit Nordstrom. They're these super happy customer service people who are all just like, you know, like those waiters in like the really fun restaurants where they sing your birthday. They all seem like those kind of people. And that's just not me. And I think, yeah, I would go to that place last a day and go, I need to get away from these people. They're nuts. And I would quit. And that, <laughs> that's what a strong culture has to do. I think it has to be unpleasant for the people that don't fit in it. I think if, if anyone can join your company and they all love it, I think the chances are what you, you probably don't really have an actual culture. Like it's probably you might have lots of little subcultures and that might be fine, but it's definitely not an overriding one. And ours was, you know, it's very clear that people that emerged from it. It was it was people like me who can't really stand wasting time. That you know, we want want to achieve stuff, we care about each other, we like have a, a strong moral code, care about each other, we care about the thing we're gonna do. And we're not really into any of the nonsense and the noise around that. Like we're the people that don't need to do, you know, if you, in like your intro emails to someone, like if you email someone, you feel the need to say all of the stuff at the beginning, hope you had a good weekend, weather's nice, isn't it? And then you say the thing you want to say. We're the people that skip that first line and just go, I want this thing, can I have this thing? Task focus and folk. Yeah, 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 just this is it. And we don't feel like we're being rude because we're like, well, this is, I'm taking as little as your time as possible. Yeah. So yeah, that emerged because that's, it probably emerged as a reflection of me because it was it was the company I was building. And equally the the culture before was amazing in a completely different way. It emerged as a reflection of the founders before who were just a completely di different kind of people. Fantastic. Uh Matt, this has been a really fun exploratory conversation for me. So I appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you, your book and the work that you're doing? Um so the book is on Amazon. It's called the Management Delusion. My website, dothings.io, it's probably the best, is the software that supports any of it. So if you read the book and you want to do it, that software help basically automates as much of it as possible, makes it easy. Or I joke that it's an automated me. It just doesn't uh, doesn't annoy you as much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm reluctantly getting involved in social media now, having avoided it for most of my life. So I, I'm, I exist on LinkedIn and Twitter, I think. Most of my stuff I try to keep uh, on my website. And three books that I'm writing. Oh, you've got more books in the pipeline? Yeah, I do. I have one that I'm hopefully close to finishing where I wanted to talk about this sort of experience of how you get promoted, basically. It, like the, I realized that everything I thought about in the early stage was wrong. And I thought, you know what? I left school at 14 and I managed to get to senior management positions in in one industry and then I changed industry, went to the bottom and then did it again. I thought, I think I might know how to do this now. And I realized it was one of those things that people asked me a lot. I thought, you know, it would be a nice thing to share I, like, for people that don't know how to make those transitions. And, you know, we were locked down, so might as well write, <laughs> might as well write some stuff. Sounds great. Matt, thank you so much. This has been extraordinary. Oh, thanks so much. It's great talking to you, Zoe. Cheers. Hmm, what an interesting interview. I think I'm left with more questions than answers around this. And it's provoked a lot of thinking for me, actually. So should we get rid of performance reviews? Yes, maybe no. I think what we should do is absolutely be having regular conversations with our people about how they're going. We should be able to give and receive effective feedback without fear. And that's more than just the skill of delivering feedback. That's the whole context, the whole atmosphere in which we work. Should we end recurring meetings? No, I don't think so necessarily. What I do think is that we should have meetings that are purposeful and useful and productive. And don't leave all that up to the manager to determine. I would put that back on to the people involved in meetings and say, how can we make these better? What would make best use of your time? What I think works best for Matt's 
approach to management is really context dependent. And right at the end there, we talked about, he admitted he's very task oriented, direct human, and he attracts and employs people who are the same. Very task oriented, very direct, and very production oriented, and are not necessarily interested, as he said, the, I don't know what he called it exactly, the waffle, the team side of things. So team dynamics, interpersonal stuff, that kind of stuff, you can see would be a low priority, if non-existent priority, in a business run by Matt or somebody like Matt. So I think his approach works really well in a very highly task-oriented culture where it's explicit that that's what's expected and what is the done thing. I think if you have a very team-oriented culture and you explicitly want to develop a team-oriented culture, his hard and fast rules may not necessarily apply. <laughs> However, I think there are some useful principles in what he's suggesting, like challenge what we're doing. Is it working? Are we just doing it by default? How could it be better? And how do we serve our people better? And how do we help people to grow? Whether you have a flat management structure or not, that is one of the core responsibilities of leadership. And helping to develop others is something that we're exploring this entire quarter. So I'd love to hear your thoughts though. Those are my thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Did you agree? Did you find like alleluia in that? Did you find yourself recoiling going, nah, don't agree with it? I'd love to hear the conversation. Feel free to pop a note or a question down in the Facebook page, which the link is in the show notes, or send me an email if you want to have a private conversation, zoe at intercompass.com.au. And um, just a reminder, we've got the podcast giveaway coming up in March. And so if you leave us a review on any of the sites and then email us and tell us that you did, because otherwise we have no way of contacting you. <laughs> you will receive something awesome in the post, in the actual mail. So heads up, that's all kicking off in March, but feel free if you enjoyed the show, if you're enjoying the show, to leave us a review. It really helps us getting the word out about the stuff that we're doing. Okay, well, that's it for today. In the meantime, live well, lead well. You've been listening to the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast with leadership expert, Zoe Routh. For more about people stuff and to contact Zoe, go to zoeralph.com.